Welcome to Cinebabble episode 32. I am your host, Ken. As always, uh, is my co-host, the death-defying Clint Jones. Clint, uh, wave at everybody as you plummet from a bridge and uh, <laughs> attempt to survive today. Oh, I'll survive. Don't worry about that. <laughs> I'm excited today, Clint, because uh, we are doing uh, essentially a horror episode. We've watched some some horror movies. An unplanned and, horror episode. An unplanned yeah. horror. That sounds like an unplanned pregnancy. I wasn't going for that. Okay, um, but does it's, unplanned... It's unsettling that you went in, there immediately. But does the word unplanned go before anything else? Like sure. when I say unplanned. Like a party. This was an unplanned party. Unplanned. Who has an unplanned like party? People just show up like, oh yeah, we didn't really plan for this. No, you have an unplanned pregnancy. But anyway, <laughs> this was this was an unintentional horror episode, but I'm actually really excited because we have a lot of horror movies. And the reason I'm excited is because during the pandemic, uh, well, the first phase of the pandemic. Yeah. Uh, Part two I... is coming soon. <laughs> God help us. Yes. Uh, during the first phase yeah. of the pandemic cinematic universe, mm -hmm. I uh, I got in this kick, I've told you, where I watched nothing but horror movies. It was the only thing that made me feel okay Yeah, because it was essentially fiction uh, was scarier than reality. And so it made me feel better about reality. It's dark. And so it's this whole dark. week, I've been back to watching horror movies and it just, it's like coming home. It feels good. <laughs> It really, I, what I've really come to realize is that this pandemic has damaged me. Yeah. Significantly. Yeah. Uh, legitimately. I'm is, not even trying yeah. to be funny. I think it has really altered yeah. uh, my ability to human. <laughs> to human. <laughs> to human. Uh, because I'm just, I'm not as good at, at, at human. human. Yeah. At human. Yeah. So this week, Clint, what you've been watching about? Well, to continue with this theme that we did not plan on, mm -hmm. it was unplanned. It's unplanned. Like the pregnancy. It's like a gestating the, horror episode. Yeah, yeah. It's it's our little brood that we're forming. <laughs> yeah. Cronenberg will be proud we of what we are. We just need a little bell that dings every time we make a horror reference. That was mm. good. Brood. I like that. <laughs> Go on. I'm very good at my job. I, I know. No, I'm not. I know. That's why you're getting a raise. Oh, cool. You're welcome. I could use it. Okay. <laughs> Uh, so this is something we had talked about a couple of weeks ago. You had brought up, but I finally got to see A Quiet Place Part 2. Ah, okay. Um, now, I'm assuming you watched this at, at home when it hit Paramount Plus? Yes. Okay. Um, which I was pleasantly surprised because I was about to get rid of that, um, that <laughs> channel because yeah. it hasn't had much to offer recently. No. But that popped up and I was all like, oh, awesome. There's a reason to keep this around for a bit if they're going to continue to do this. <laughs> mm -hmm. Um and I had seen the first one, how many years ago? Did that oh come goodness, out? right four when it came five? out, four or five, yeah. Um, and I, I enjoyed it well enough. I, I, I liked it. I thought there was a lot of really cool world building in it that was unconventional, a lot of just showing and not explaining yeah. and that I really enjoy that. It's not force feeding you this information, it's letting you explore and, um, and find it on your own. And I um, went into the second one, I, I wasn't, very, I wasn't really excited initially when it was coming out, but, um, so I was, I don't know, say hesitant going into it, but I was just, I don't know, on the fence about it, how good it would be. So going in, I was pleasantly surprised. I really enjoyed it. Awesome. Um, I thought it continued the story in a really mm -hmm. like natural way. It, it introduced some new characters like, uh, Killian Murphy's like, is he, was he a 
a brother or a friend? No, no, no. Family? He's he's kind of friend of the family. Like he, the, the implication uncle. I took was he's that farm from yeah. the first one where he's sending signals back. They just right. haven't been in contact at yeah. all. So it was very naturally um, advancing the story yeah. um, and also continuing that showing, not telling, mm-hmm. like storytelling, which I really enjoy. Like it's just like little things that really fill out the world that you that make it feel lived in. And um, I really enjoyed that. But I'll oh, go ahead. I was just going to say they had a really difficult corner to turn because spoilers at the end of the first movie you lose your your main character yeah and so in this one they're essentially replacing him Mm -hmm. and every other movie that would attempt this would fail because they would have made this character uh a soon-to-be villain or a slightly unhinged character or but they i i thought they did a really natural job of giving uh or or re-injecting a father figure into the mix Mm -hmm. but a very different father figure uh, that's that's flawed, but but is in in no way uh, a detriment to the movie, or or even a detriment to the the progress of who becomes the main character, which is the daughter. Right. And I, I just I really enjoyed him on screen, and I was braced. Yeah. I kept waiting for him to be secret villain, mm-hmm. and I was just so pleasantly surprised that that they kept him as as a no, he's just a he's a good guy, and he's just been through some stuff. I yeah. appreciated that. Yeah, and I like that he wasn't – it didn't really go far enough to be, him be a father figure. It was mm-hmm. more like he, he – they really kept that arm's length of being like a friend of the family. Mm-hmm. And I, But I really enjoyed how the daughter kind of took up that mantle and she yep. took over that role. Well, and, and she doesn't need a father figure. No, no. She had resolved all of those issues even though she loses her dad. Right. She had resolved all of those issues in her character arc. So to replay that as if she needs a dad right. would have been – a hindrance to to the story it would have felt like a repeat whereas it's it's really he's the one that needs to be a father she doesn't need it right it's just he's lost his family and and he has this need or or just this this drive to reconnect to what he used to be right right Um, feel a little human again. yeah and it was it was a really interesting way to because you're absolutely right she doesn't need a father figure mm-hmm. but he's still playing the role of a, a father right but it's more about him yeah than it is about what she needs mm-hmm. even when he's trying to protect her it's generally she's the one that that seems to know what to do right right yeah she's well versed in the mm-hmm. world and her, yeah. through her experience but i will say i really enjoyed it but i do not know if it's a good movie as a standalone, as a, as a okay. standalone movie, I don't think it could stand on its own um, because it's so reliant on the first one yeah. and you seeing the first one. And yeah. um, not in a bad way, I, I don't think. I I think we're savvy enough as new audiences or, or as modern audiences to be able to, you know, we've been through a twenty-two movie Marvel franchise, and so I I don't know if that's as important as it used to be. But I I definitely agree with you. If you went into this. It's well, not that you couldn't enjoy it, but there's just, there's not. I feel like even the Marvel movies, they have a very like strong sense of self. Like they can stand gotcha. on their own. There's a very clear defined story within there. And mm-hmm. I'm not saying that this doesn't have it, but there's something to me that was missing. Like there was an, an act or, or something. There was a bit of character that was missing from mm-hmm. the first one that just like, I think it could have used another half hour or something mm-hmm. to just flush it. Like it was a really 
straight to the point. This is what we're doing. This is our mission, our goal. These are what we're, we're doing right now. And I really enjoyed it for that, but I do feel like it doesn't stand on its own as a straight, like as its own movie. Yeah. But I think that could change if they end up doing a third part and it really finishes out that trilogy and like does something amazing. I think I could maybe change my opinion on that. I, even though I I'm saying I really did enjoy it and there was a lot of great stuff in it. I just don't think it stands on its own okay. as a standalone movie. Mm -hmm. And no, that's I, a little, I definitely get what you're saying. Yeah. There. But yeah, so I watched that. I really enjoyed it. Okay. Um, I also have been watching, um, well, I just started it, but the second season of Ted Lasso just came out. I still have not started that you... <laughs> series at all. I know, I know. I while know. you were horror, Clint, while you horror. were horrifying yourself through the pandemic, I was finding comfort food, <laughs> and um, Ted Lasso was one of those things that really got me through. It's like one of the most heartfelt. Um, sincere, enjoyable, really funny comedies, like one of the funniest comedies I've seen in a while, but it really like warmed me through it. And it's really well done. And uh, I highly recommend if you just need some kind of like comfort and like feel good about other people mm -hmm. that there's love and um, people out there who are trying to do their best to make the world a little bit better um it's one of those shows and i, I need to watch it yeah. i i have a couple of questions is is there any serial killers in it <laughs> well it's only the second like first episode only okay. aired, so it could go that way okay. i highly doubt it because does it have demons supernatural entities that aren't necessarily judeo-christian but just any sort of malevolent forces. i'd say ted is dealing with demons oh okay but not in the way you're of thinking of the physically manifesting variety no, or um, more of like the psyche and, i'm trying yeah, here yeah i no, seriously i i need to just sit down and watch it i've heard so many good things about it mm -hmm. uh, from so many different directions it's I just I need to watch it, and he's great. I, oh yeah, every, I love him and everything else. So. Everyone is really great in it, and it's a lot of British actors um, okay. you may not have seen in things, but um, it's totally worth watching if you want a little joy. Okay, <laughs> which I, I don't know, know. Might, might sprinkle that in there. Maybe just okay. like in between. Maybe I'm ready for joy. Maybe that's the problem. Maybe you'll once you start, you're like, oh, this is what I was missing. This does feel nice. Yeah. Okay. Joy is good. Okay. I'll give it a shot this week. Okay. So another little bit of joy that we started watching was a new series that also on Apple, Apple's been getting some good stuff, but um, Schmigadoon. 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 Um, <laughs> and it is a play on, it's a play on like 1940s, 50s um, musicals. And it's got... Um, Oh, it's got, who's got in there, Ken? Let's see. I don't know. You find the most, <laughs> what is this on? I just told you. It's on Apple. I'm so stuck on the name. Nothing makes sense it's to me. It's got Keegan-Michael Key. Okay. It's got Cecily Strong. Um, Fred Armisen shows up. Um, it's got Martin Short for a minute as a very delightful little leprechaun man. <laughs> so it takes place in like, this couple will go on this hike mm -hmm. and they cross this bridge and they end up in this magical world called Schmigadoon. Schmigadoon, where it's an actual like 1940s, 50s musical world. Mm -hmm. And they've stepped into this world okay. and to get out of it, they have to 
find true love and they're a couple. So this puts a little strain on their relationship. Because they thought they already had true love? They thought they had true love. That's fun. Yeah. And every five minutes, there's a big musical number that breaks out in the style of like Oklahoma. And they are very like Keegan, uh, Keegan Michael Key hates musicals. So it's just (laughs) him going through and just like being fed up with this, trying to get out of it. And it's, if you like musicals in any way, I'd say give it a shot if you okay. hate them. My wife doesn't care for musicals, but she's really enjoying it. Okay. It's got enough. That like, makes me feel better because I'm not generally a musical fan. Okay. I, I like musicals. So I, La La Land, Hamilton, Sound of Music. Uh, <laughs> okay. Uh, yeah, I, I could name five musicals okay. that I enjoy, but mm-hmm. I have two more escape. Seven Brides for Seven Brothers? No. 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 Okay. I've watched it. No. Okay. I've watched it. I, I, I <laughs> well, I grew up, my mom liked to watch them and I grew up watching gotcha. them and I, so I okay. have a sweet spot in my heart for them. My mom would watch them, but from the other room I would hear, Oklahoma. Mm-hmm. No. I like it. It didn't draw me into the room. So you might not enjoy it. So maybe watch an episode. The other, the casting is really good. Okay. It, it makes it um, enjoyable. No, maybe this is the week I rediscover joy. So maybe, uh, you know, the mm. only thing that's been providing me joy is, is anything Marvel, but that's, that's a whole other conversation. So. Oh, okay. Okay. Uh, there's joy in there. Yeah. yeah. Horror too. More for me than, you than know. me. Are you talking Schmigadoon or Marvel? Marvel. Oh yeah. Okay. There's lots of joy <laughs> in Marvel for me. All right. Have you been watching anything else? No. What have you been watching about? <laughs> I watched Saul 42. The, mm-hmm. the Book of Spiral. Spiral, the Book of Saul. Saul, the Legend of the Spiral. I don't know what it's called. Are there any musical numbers in there, it? There might as well be. Okay. Uh, do you remember Predator 2? I Yes. Yeah. Do you remember Predator 2 fondly? No. Good. Uh, <laughs> you shouldn't. Predator 2, if you ever go back and watch it now, and, and I do have nostalgic love for Predator 2. It was, yeah. it was one of the early R-rated kind of sci-fi slash-em-ups I had, I had watched when I was much too young for it. Uh, but it's it's a very intense and aggressive film. Yeah, Everyone is very shouty. Everything is very immediate. And, mm-hmm. and this, this new Saul film, uh, Chris Rock is in full Chris Rock mode. Yeah, It's got Sam Jackson in full Sam Jackson mode. Mm-hmm. It actually has, uh, what's his name that plays Nick in Handmaid's Tale? Oh, okay. He's really good yeah. at it. Uh, he was actually, but, but he's kind of just coasting along. He Mm -hmm. feels like a normal, like an actual human being instead of a shouty cop (laughs) that is just finding dead bodies and shooting at shadows. Uh, So you're saying there are some of those in there. uh, It just, it's, it's an angry little film with, with a lot of gore. If if you're a gore hound, man, you would love this thing. But do you remember when we went years ago and we saw the first Saul movie? In the theater. Yeah, yeah. Do you remember our reaction to it? Because we had the exact same reaction. I do. I remember the points where it just turned me off. Yeah, but yeah. yeah. It just, it was a lot of really in-your-face movie. And it wasn't just the traps or the violence. It was the style of the filmmaking. It yeah. almost felt like a uh, like a, a death metal music video where just lots of flashing lights and lots of, uh, you know, hard zooms and, and quick camera pans and shouty people. And, yeah. This this really, if you're a Saul fan, this probably captures that feeling of that first movie mm-hmm. better than any of the sequels. And so I'm sure it will find its fan base. But my goodness, it is an angry little film <laughs> with uh, 
a script that's at least three novels long because they yeah. pack a lot of story into an hour and a half or whatever it is. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you can't tell, I'm not recommending this movie. I could tell on your face it was not. <laughs> yeah, I it, it was not one I enjoyed. It was it was big dumb fun, really heavy on the dumb. Yeah. Uh, and and again, if you like the Saw movies, it, you it's like know, yeah, if you like the Saw God movies, you, you think like you would yeah. Oh yeah. Have you watched any other Saw movies? I've watched all the Saw movies. Oh, okay. I used to have to review them. Oh right. Um, and uh, yeah, it, uh, two I think is decent. Maybe three. I I they blur together. Yeah. Everything becomes a, a face mask that pops open, and the last thing I need right now is to think about face masks killing me because. <laughs> I, I need, you know, it just, Ken, I might have to go back to a face mask. Are, I don't want to think about it killing me. They are killing us. Ken. Okay. Well, you know, I hear they suffocate children now. They do. I've been listening to news clips of different town hall meetings mm-hmm. where people are freaking out because school's coming back and some of the schools are saying you have to wear masks and there's parents on these microphones just screaming, yeah. you can't suffocate my children. <laughs> and like, I, I, I get people who don't want to wear a mask and I get I don't, you know, if you don't want your kid to wear a mask, but calm down, Brenda. Right. Like suffocating your children, you know, it's just, it's getting a little much. Yeah. I wonder how many cases of suffocated child has occurred. Pretty sure. (laughs) Zero. I'm pretty sure the only uh, suffocation that's occurred in this pandemic is, is from the virus. Right. And, you know. uh, It has a knack for doing that, I I hear. It seems like a, a piece of cloth is way better than intubation. But enough about politics <laughs> and things being dragged into the political sphere. Uh, let's suffocate ourselves with some horror movies. Are you ready, Clint? Let's do it. I'm. A, <laughs> let's you don't do sound it. as excited as me, Clint. Your love for horror is amazing. I, I, I love really horror. It's really blossomed. But, yeah. I know, but but it, it's really, it's in an unhealthy place. Yeah. This morning, this afternoon, whatever we're calling this, we have three horror movies. We have Black Coat's Daughter. We have uh, Saint Maud, mm-hmm. and then we have a little flick called Villains that you can find on Hulu. Correct? Yeah, that okay. was our Cinetron. Uh, that was our Cinetron yeah. spend from yeah. last week. But let's start with Black Coat's Daughter. Black Coat's Daughter. Uh, just the description says: During the dead of winter, a troubled young woman played by Emma Roberts embarks on a mysterious journey to an isolated prep school where two stranded students. Uh, played by two girls you haven't seen before, face a sinister threat from an unseen evil force. Clint, what did you think of The Black Coat's Daughter? You recommended this to me. I did. Um, I had, I think I'd seen something for this, I don't know, a few months ago. So I thought it was a recent movie, but this movie is from 2015. Um, is it really yeah, that old? Yeah, it's actually that old. And it's finally, I guess, I made, I, I yeah. thought it was... No. Was it 2015 in like the UK? It's just now coming here? Because it just started popping up I know, in my Amazon I don't know theme. exactly. But it, yeah, that's what it, okay. it came out in 2015. But anyway, sorry. Um, so I, I didn't really know anything about it. It, it was an A24 film, which mm-hmm. I'm generally uh, excited. Like, not, I don't know. I'm generally okay into the they're just a higher yeah, pedigree it they seems have a good they they have taste. a better yeah, yeah. they have they have a better entry level standard right uh that that at least when you see that a24 you know you're you're at least going to get a decent flick right right you know that's a little bit of thought has been put into it yeah. in like that's outside the norm for maybe a horror film um but i went into it and i was really digging the tone of the movie mm-hmm. and then i got further into it and realized 
oh, this is all this movie has is tone. Yeah. This yeah. is. It's a, an atmosphere. Movie. It's an atmosphere movie. And generally, I, I mean, I like those kind of films mm -hmm. um, when there's a strong atmosphere and there's mood, moody music that's propelling things and uh, adding to the suspense. And But when it's something where that's all they have and the story might be lacking in some ways, I slowly check out. Yeah. And that's what happened with this. Okay. Um, I think the actors did a good job. I mm -hmm. think they were uh, doing the best with what they were given. Thank you for not saying competent. <laughs> I hate when people are like, the actors are competent. <laughs> like, yeah, no kidding. Yeah. Go on. I guess that's why they're actors and they have a job. <laughs> they're given a job, you would hope. Generally. Anyway. Yeah. But overall, I was pretty underwhelmed with this okay. movie um i think the tone's interesting also going into it not realizing that there is supposed to be a big twist in the middle and picking up on that very early on and then waiting for that to happen and it never really mounts to much and so i was feeling a little like i was ahead of it not that i'm smarter than it but it was just that that feeling of like, okay, when is this going to catch up? And and once you had, had explained that to me before we started recording, then it clicked in my mind. I and yeah, I'm, it's it's not a smarter than. It just at some point early on, either I guessed it or yeah. I just took it for granted. I didn't even watch the movie thinking of it as a twist. I took it as a this is what the movie's telling me from the beginning, right? And I probably just lucked into that, but. So then, you know, I didn't check out from feeling like, come on, catch up with the twist, because I I thought that's what I was watching the whole time. Um, I I enjoyed it. I think I think a good bit more than you. Yeah. But I used to, in the house I grew up in, <laughs> I had this bedroom. Yeah. And there was a hallway that ran outside of the bedroom, and my parents would often leave the light on in the hallway when I was falling asleep in my dark room. Mm -hmm. And so any shadow just started it when when i was a kid it would creep me out when i would see shadows in this hallway and i realized some of the visuals when it's getting to to more of the whether it's an actual supernatural entity or it's her or whatever uh it, it tapped into those exact brain images that gotcha. i had in my imagination as a child so from the very beginning this thing gave me a a level of chills just from that atmosphere and that mood and the imagery that I was not expecting. Yeah. And I think that really locked me into that. So so I think basically what I'm saying is a lot of it has to do, because it is, you're absolutely right, it's a pure atmosphere movie. And if it's an atmosphere movie that really taps into some of those kind of primal fears that you already have, yeah. it's going to, I think, take you through the movie you know, much more successfully, like it did with me. Whereas for you, you just, what you're saying, you just, you kind of grew bored with it. Well, I think, I, I mean, I'm not saying that I don't have those fears, but mm -hmm. I'm also saying that I feel like that atmosphere has to be propelling you towards something. Mm -hmm. It can't just be feeling, like it's just filling space really. Like that music, I guarantee if you replaced all that music with something else, you would not feel the same way. Oh, sure. And that's yeah. that, when it's relying that much on something like that, I think it's doing everything a disservice. And um, also I wanted to bring up a fact. This is, or not a fact, a thought. A thought. This is not a fact. This is- It's your truth, Clint. Clint's Speak facts. your truth. 
Clint's, fa- <laughs> Clint's facts. Um, okay. I don't know if this is going to be considered a spoiler or not. Well, let's just throw that okay. spoiler warning in okay. there. This girl. They're all dead. What? No. <laughs> just kidding. They were all dead from the beginning. <laughs> this girl hears the mere mention of Satan mm-hmm. very early on. Mm-hmm. And she's like, awesome, Satan. <laughs> Satan, you, you're talking about Satan here? I'm in. You, you, all you have to do is mention that guy's name and I'm on board. It is, with a different soundtrack, it is the only romantic comedy featuring <laughs> Satan that you will ever laugh your way through. Where she's left at the altar. <laughs> but see. <laughs> yeah. A literal altar almost mm-hmm. at the end. Well, I, actually, yeah. Look at yeah. that. Um, so I just feel like, being ahead of it at points where that it never really goes to a point where it feels like it's beyond what it's set up. Mm-hmm. Like that was a letdown and just, uh, I feel like atmosphere just needs to be propelling, like propelling it towards something. And there's movies that I, and I'm trying to think of one that what's that movie. Um, uh, the one where it's a kind of a zombie flick, like the the night, the something the night. Oh, the night um, comes for us, or uh, it comes at night. It comes at night, it, that, which was also an A twenty four, and that's production. a very strong atmospheric mm-hmm. piece. But I feel like all the moments of atmosphere are really lending themselves towards something. I think that has stronger characters. Yeah, I think I think these characters are a little. And anytime you're dealing with high school girls, you're automatically dealing with essentially one note characters there's not a lot you can do with two uh, prep school girls you, one of th- whom's the rebel but they didn't one... even try to do anything maybe i don't know i don't know i wasn't we don't know a lot <laughs> i don't know i don't know why are you listening to this podcast claimed, we don't know anything. i never claim to know anything All i'm right. a guy who watched a movie and you're asking me what i thought about it well i, care, I know Clint. like Nothing that says that you should listen to this. Okay. Well, yeah. I have all the pedigree. Do you have any other thoughts about this film? I don't have any actual pedigree. <laughs> you do. I, you were I a don't have any for other. Living. I know. I for years. Yeah. Uh, but but I'm not anymore. And the 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 minute you stop, pedigree is gone. I don't know. You still have it in your bones. In my bones. I'd just be a guy sitting on the couch beside you, and I would throw out one line quips. And then that's all I have. Yeah. I was near a person who reviewed movies. Little, little pulling back the curtain. Oftentimes I would steal verbatim some just brilliant one-liner that Clint would have about a movie. And I would build an entire review around it. And I would get paid for it. And I would write, you know, 1,500, 2,000 words. Just, but really it was just surrounding this thing that Clint came up with. So Clint, you're, you're my pedigree. So my one line would for this would be, Satan, you say? <laughs> Hmm. That's a good one line. Yeah. I'm on board. I, I don't have much more to say about this because it was such an atmosphere film. But one of the uh, the the second movie that we watched, which was Saint Maud, mm-hmm. that's let's go ahead and shift into okay. that because that's where I have more to say about Black Coat's Daughter. Black Coat's Daughter was heavy on atmosphere, but where it started, other than a, a few little like oh that's interesting that it went in that direction for me, it was essentially. Where it started is where it ended. And what my expectations f- were for the movie lasted throughout the film. By the end of it, uh, there was no grand, wow, that really was a surprise. 
in any way in terms of filmmaking or I knew I was walking into just kind of an atmospheric, uh, you know, supernatural thriller kind of thing. And, and it delivered. St. Maud was very, very different for me because even having watched the trailers and, and knowing a little bit about the movie and different things like that, it was a completely different experience. Yeah. And just right off the top, I, I really enjoyed this movie. Mm-hmm. Weeks ago, we talked about Censor and how Censor sort of, as it was progressing, it started to come unraveled because it, it just, we could never put our finger on it, but it, it didn't have that, that, uh, that connective tissue that really made you understand why this person was having uh, mental instability all right, of a sudden. Yeah. St. Maud has such a, a really smooth and organic build towards increased right. lunacy, yeah. essentially, or insanity. I, I was just, I, I was kind of, uh, you know, cliche edge of my seat the whole time. Hmm. Where is this movie going next? And it's not that it ended up somewhere that that I thought it wouldn't. I mean, you can feel the momentum of it. Right. right. It's headed to a, yeah. a a bad place, but it just it was so well done. Mm-hmm. It was so well shot and performed, and it it just it it didn't have any outright twists. It just had enough where I I kept wondering, okay, where's where's the road turning next? Yeah. Where are we? What's going to be around the next bend? And it really kept me going. Is that the sort of thing that you're talking about when you're describing needing something towards the end for Black Coat's daughter? What was your experience with St. Maud? <laughs> well, going, uh, I had seen the trailer for this a, a few months, probably before the pandemic, mm-hmm. and it wasn't super interested because I thought it was more or less a mercy killing nurse yeah, and who had found God and then she was just trying to uh, relieve these people of their pain. Um, so I did not have many expectations for it. Um, going into it, I, I agree with you. I really like this movie. I think it really naturally progresses. It does a really good job of making you feel from the beginning that the progression this woman is going through mentally is a natural thing and it, or there's history for it from Mm -hmm. it, from her that makes you believe that this is possible for her. This is something she's been dealing with. This is something that she um, is trying to uh, trying to find her way through. And I, so I was totally on board with that. Also, I think as far as mood goes, this did not rely on music to propel it. It was more how it was shot in the tone of it. So it wasn't relying on that just dark ambient atmosphere. It it has that, but at the moments where it's necessary to propel the, I've used that before we're talking about this in the other um, movie, but it was much more naturally done in mm-hmm. to those moments of like, are, is this a supernatural uh thing going on or is this a psyche thing the music and the tone work together really well and it it had the ability i think much more effectively to shift tones at times yeah because there are times she's more from the spiritual end of things she's more on path right uh, and other times she's really kind of going back to her past and and she's off path and it it changes tone but it makes sense with the character it makes sense with the story and and it gives you enough of that that 
that basis so that when things start to unravel more aggressively towards the end, it not not only makes sense, it almost feels inevitable, but it's it's also feeling that I had this sense of dread. Yeah. The well, whole time. I knew what was going to yeah. happen, but there was just this deep sense of how much damage is she going to do and and how much is this going to really come out and and hurt people around her right. before this movie you know comes to its close right i think it really benefits from those changes in tone like mm-hmm. i really like the moments of where she's narrating like she's writing in her journal or whatever yeah. and she's narrating her thoughts um from what's happening with her um, taking care of this woman and i think those moments make the impact of the atmospheric surreal much more uh like it's much more impactful and i think like i think um black coat's daughter is kind of like holding down all of the lower keys on a piano <laughs> the whole time mm-hmm. and this is playing all of it so that you can get those moments where this is lighter this is a moment of just humanity where she's interacting with a previous coworker mm-hmm. and the moments where she's really losing it, all of them benefit from that. Yeah. And I, but I think, I mean, there's movies that do it well where it can be one note. I mean, let's say one note, like, um, but I think this really benefits from playing all of those keys and it, it it just i don't know i keep saying that i don't know ken that's okay uh, black coat's daughter was directed by oz perkins and oz perkins has done movies before this saint Maud was directed by a woman named rose glass her this first, is her first yeah. movie and i did not know that going in yeah. i would have never thought this was a a debut film it it feels much more confident and and reliant on itself right. rather than other sources than I, I would ever expect from a first-time horror director. And I, one of the things that I really found masterful about it, and most psychological horror, when it has supernatural elements, I, I really think it goes to another level when you can watch it from a place of complete reason. Right. And here is someone just having, this is a psychologically damaged woman who is having hallucinations and she is just mentally ill. Mm-hmm. You could also watch it as there's some definite supernatural things happening. And you could until that last scene. <laughs> well, yeah. But you could you could watch it yeah. in, in oh, either yeah. mode uh-huh. without a, a definitive, you know, I, I think I know what the what Rose Glass is saying right. with the film. I, you know, I I don't think it's meant to be a a literal supernatural event that's yeah, happening. No. I think you're watching a deeply disturbed woman, mm-hmm. but at the same time, it, it has that element of questioning the whole time where you're not quite sure at any moment it could, it could veer into a more, uh, supernaturally dense field and it wouldn't have felt like it had done you a disservice or it had pulled the wool over your eyes or anything. You could, you could really watch this movie in two completely different modes. Yeah. I mean, even. I never got to, when I got to the end, I never felt like they were trying to dupe me. No. And I also really appreciated that they made it so real for her Mm -hmm. that it doesn't really matter. It it was a real experience experience for her and she was living what she thought was her truth. Yeah. (laughs) Weird way to put that, I think. But I I think it, it really balanced like the characters a lot better. Like there's, 
the tone, everything was much better to me than um, Black Coat's Daughter. Well, and we both grew up in fundamentally conservative churches with with a, a religious background. And I think one of the things that resonates for me in this is somebody who is not realizing the the cognitive dissonance between two different things they believe. Right. And you know, this is certainly a more extreme version of that. This is somebody who is you know, believing in a god of love and and all of this but also believing that a god of love would propel you towards violence. Uh, right. And it's it, you know, it's it's almost that old uh, serial killer trope of, you know, God told me to do it. Yeah. I mean, it's old Testament. It, yeah, yeah. But, but the way it plays with that, I I think has more to say. I think this film as a whole has much more to say yeah. about belief, faith, and the corruption of those things, uh, than something like black Hood's daughter, right. which I think is much more of a straightforward, probably supernatural, uh, yeah. you know, just, just kind of scare fest. Or that's what it's trying to be, rather. Well, I mean, there are a lot of overlaps between that movie and this yeah. as far as the main character. Like, is she going through a psychotic break where she's seeing what she thinks is the devil yeah. or she's possessed by the devil or one of his minions? Like, you could say the same thing about yeah. that movie, but I feel like th- that one didn't flush out those that story well yeah. enough to make it interesting. Well, and, and Black Coat's Daughter relies on so much more coincidence. That's why I felt it was much more of a directly supernatural story. Yeah. Because, oh, she just happens to be picked up by the parents of mm. the other girl. And so that that read to me as a, there are other things happening behind the scenes here. I never got that with St. Maud. The only time you see uh, supernatural elements, it's when she's alone. Right. And so yeah. it's, it's very... Well, other than that last confrontation at the end. Yes, but even then, you know, by that point, I'm understanding that she is is most likely hallucinating. Yeah. And you can take it either way, but she's most likely hallucinating this. And this is just her mind driving her to justifiable murder. She's going to murder this woman because this woman hurt her. But in her religious mind, she needs this woman to be true evil to be able to justify morally what she's Mm, about yeah. to do and so it i don't know it's it was a very interesting double feature i i watched them almost back to back i yeah. think uh one day one and the next day the other and i i couldn't help comparing the two and then constantly bringing in censor and what we had what we had talked about with that right saint Maud is is kind of uh what i wanted censor to be mm. it's it's got just a very cohesive feeling from start to finish right? Uh, that essentially follows the same track as Censor, but in a way that I, I believed. Censor, I felt like we're dealing with this essentially well-balanced woman mm-hmm. who suddenly heads off the deep end. Right, right. Whereas this, at no point with Maud, uh, is is there a thought that, that she's okay mm-hmm. or that there's not something wrong here? Right. Uh, you know, from the beginning, it's okay. This this woman is not well. <laughs> just how unwell is she? Or is, is she's been through something? Right. Even if it's not that she's unwell, it's that she's been through something and she's been trying to cope with it by putting all of her eggs in the faith basket. Yep. And either that's leading her down a path that's heightening something in her, or mm-hmm. it, there's something to her past that is darker than we know because it does a really good job of 
really just peppering that past in throughout. So you don't yeah. really get a super clear picture of what happened. Mm -hmm. um, and there was moments where I, I enjoyed it for that. And sometimes I was a little frustrated by that. Mm -hmm. Overall, I, I enjoyed, like, I, I don't think it needed more of, yeah. of what that event was that got her fired. Mm -hmm. um, so overall, overall, I think it did a really good job of balancing that. All right. So Black Black Coat's Daughter, I'm I'm a little heavier on the recommend for than you. If you wanted but, just a tone piece, sure. Yeah. But, but Saint Maud, yeah. it sounds like we're both kind of on the same page yeah. where it's it's a more it's a uh, much easily movie. recommended. Yeah it's, yeah, it's definitely a stronger, more confident movie. Yeah. Um I you know, it wasn't this year, but what a year's matter anymore. <laughs> Saint Maud's definitely kind of in my my ten of the the things I've watched this year so oh. far. Uh, and I maybe that's keeping track. too I've much watched for it, too but, much stuff. Yeah. I can't even <laughs> make a list anymore. The ones that just continue to resonate in my mind for yeah. an entire week after, those are the ones that that end up usually at the end of the year being my tops. Yeah. So, well, the third movie that we're covering uh, is, <laughs> you can try to compare it to Black Coat's Daughter and St. Maud, but I don't think it's going to, I don't think it's going to happen. Uh, our third movie is Villains. And Villains is from directors Robert Olson and Dan Burke. It's about a pair of amateur criminals who break into a suburban home. Uh, surprise, they have not broken into the home of, of a normal couple. Uh, these couple. <laughs> Don't uh, you hate when that happens? Oh, yeah, I know. Every time I break into a home, I just I enjoy when when the family is scared. You know, it's right. Just, it makes the whole process easier. I know. What are you doing it for if they're not scared? Exactly. So these poor amateur criminals, they just happen to break into the house of two sadistic homeowners mm -hmm. played by um, Jeffrey Donovan and, uh, oh, what's her name? Uh, Kira Sedgwick. Yeah. And they are, man, they are hamming it up and having just a ball of a time playing uh, two deeply polite Southern serial killers. <laughs> Clint, what did you think of Villains? Um, well, I really enjoyed it for that fact that everybody's hamming it up so yeah. much. Like everyone <laughs> you can tell is having a good time with the script and the characters that they're given. Um, I, I didn't know much about it going into mm -hmm. it. I, I was interested because the cast was really good. And I think this movie is all about the cast. Yeah. I don't know if this movie would be as maybe half as good if it wasn't cast with these people. Yeah. And that's saying a lot about these actors. I really thought you were going to hate this movie. Really? I genuinely did. Oh. Yeah. I don't know. I'm I, glad you enjoyed it. I think from the beginning it definitely sets up what it is really clearly and I really like a good sense of fun in a film. Yeah. Jeffrey Donovan and Kira Sedgwick are essentially cartoon characters. <laughs> yeah. But in all the right ways. This is you've talked before about how you'll get frustrated with a movie because it 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 hits this middle ground where it tries to have both things. It's trying to be serious and it's trying to be over the top and you just wish it would push one way or the other. And this is one where I felt like every character Nope, we're just going to take it and multiply it by three. Yeah. And we're going to do a version of each of these characters that's so ludicrous that it it somehow works. And it does come down to the casting. Oh, yeah. It comes down to these four actors. The four actors are talented enough and they know what they're doing that uh, then it's just the script. And the script has pit these two very cartoonish characters against these two even 
stranger cartoonish characters. Yeah, two different character cartoonish characters. And because yeah. there are times, literally, I was sitting there thinking of Wile E. Coyote and, and oh, Road yeah, Runner yeah. or Bugs Bunny and yeah. Elmer Fudd. Or it's it's not directly cartoonish like no. that. It's but not... there are the extremes of this yeah. kind of character. Yeah. It almost it kind of reminded me of more extreme like um Cohen Brothers or something. One yes. of their like sillier movies. Um so yeah, like I think from the beginning, like that opening scene where they're robbing the convenience store, <laughs> mm-hmm. uh Mike and, uh, Monroe and Bill Skarsgard. Bill yes. Skarsgard of it fame oh, yeah. played Pennywise. And uh She's from. What was she from? She from. Um, I've seen her follows. before. Was she? Oh, from, it follows. It follows. Um, and oh, she was also in that other film by that uh, director with um, Silver Lake or no, no different the one. One where it's the veteran comes home and is staying with the couple. Like, oh, the uh, guest. Yeah, I believe it's it's her too really i think i her. did not connect that and i even just watched the guest again like two weeks ago yeah great little yeah uh, thriller yeah horror movie but maybe anyway. i'm wrong about that uh i don't know okay it might be doesn't matter Let's it's a good movie watch the guest um back to villains. so it sets up really clearly what it is and like it's it's going to be cartoonish over the top and fun yeah. and but they do a really good job of establishing their relationship Mm-hmm. Um, early on, so you get a feel for who they are and who and how you should feel about them as the movie goes on, and like what a kind of attachment you should have to them. It's essentially two criminal couples, yeah, that are genuinely in love, right? Like right. Each couple is genuinely in love, <laughs> but they're one is traditional criminal and the other is just bonkers, right? Uh, and it's I just I laughed a lot, mm-hmm. genuine good laugh out loud laughing in this movie (laughs) yeah i think it was a lot of fun they're um just back and forth (laughs) as like one would have the upper hand Mm -hmm. for a moment and then the other would regain it and uh and how that would position them within this house it could be almost done as like a a play like almost that would be a really hilarious play (laughs) (laughs) very dark play oh yeah yeah (laughs) I mean, it would be funny, I think. Yeah. Um, but like you were saying early on, like how sometimes I get um, annoyed when things are really flopping back and forth, say like in Army of the Dead, um, where there's moments of extreme sincerity and then moments of cartoonishness and zombies. I think this balanced that way better because early on they established the relationships of all the characters how you should feel about them. And it wasn't wildly swinging. Mm-hmm. It was pretty evenly toned, an even tone until the end where you're supposed to feel something about a character. Mm-hmm. And so it felt natural to me. Okay. Yeah. I, yeah, I enjoyed it. I, <laughs> it was, it was so much better than the spiral of Saul or circular Saul or Did whatever. Did you rewatch this? A uh, villains? Yes. Yeah. Because I remembered how much I had enjoyed it. Now oh, I okay. watched it mid 2020 yeah. so it had been a while and I, I was a little worried like maybe i was just needing a good laugh at the time a uh-huh. good dark laugh but no i i enjoyed it again uh and just watching the performances yeah. that's the biggest thing it's it's a lot of fun and uh especially if you like good horror comedy yeah that's definitely i would definitely put this more in the horror comedy camp 
than than any other home invasion or or serial killer this or that yeah um, but yeah it's 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 good twisted fun have fun with it kids why not <laughs> well to close out our horror episode uh we got to talking about uh one Stephen King and uh I I have been a longtime fan of Stephen King I was one who gobbled up everything the man wrote and then once I moved out of my parents house and was married and all of that I just went on a tear watching everything that had ever been adapted from Stephen King yeah and have since you have had a more casual relationship with Stephen King correct yeah I never went crazy for the man I went I didn't go crazy for the man you do you love the man I do I do. Stalk but the man, I just, you love the man. <laughs> yeah, my He's annual the man trips to you Maine. You were trying to break into his house, <laughs> and you want to frighten exactly. him. Exactly. Exactly. So, like, if I can frighten Stephen exactly. King, I can Every, frighten anyone. All of these other people have just been complete practice. Yeah. I'm headed for Bangor, Maine, and I'm gonna get me some King. Anyway, <laughs> get me some King, not the burger either. The man. Yeah. Uh, but but I have just uh, you know, and 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 I'm very, I'm I'm not a fanboy in the sense of every single thing that's been adapted I enjoy or that every single thing that he's written I've enjoyed it's uh it's been pretty easy uh and and disappointing at times to spot the flaws yeah um but we've we've talked before and we we've, we've sort of walked around how with different Stephen King adaptations that we've watched especially last year with The Outsider mm-hmm. and then we watched Doctor Sleep and then more recently uh you started Lisey's story. I yeah. finished Lisey's story. Is it over now? It is over. Oh. Praise Jesus. You can tell how much I was paying attention. <laughs> yeah. It, it it should have been three episodes. It really yeah. genuinely could have been a, a two-part kind of miniseries movie, uh-huh. and it would have been so much better and so much more like the book. It was really overdone and yeah. overextended, and, and it just... It felt indulgent. Right. Uh, but, but one of the things we've talked about before is how... In the written words, Stephen King does a very good job of creating imagery and creating situations and just supernatural entities that that really they work on the page. Uh huh. They don't often work when they get to the screen. Right. Why do you think that is? Why is it that something you know, especially if you're really in where there's the Dark Tower and some of those more uh, high fantasy horror creatures that he does. It just makes sense on the page, but then when it's realized in an adaptation, it just. <sighs> yeah, I think. Well, one thing is, um, I think he suffers from he does the Lovecraftian thing where it's indescribable, like you just can't describe this thing. So he always hints around the edges of it. And so that doesn't leave much for somebody who is going to try to adapt it, mm-hmm. to try to fill in those blank spots, because you, as the reader, have formed your vision of this thing. Like, I mean, as whatever he's giving you to do that in the story. Even if you can't get an image, you've formed your it's very feeling. personal feeling it's that a, you have yeah, about what right. a character's experience. So then going into a film where you're director and your creative team are trying to bring this to life i feel like inevitably i'm not going to try to say it inevitably inevitably it's going to let people down Mm. because they have their vision their feelings about that moment in the book 
that's trying to describe this thing that's indescribable, that is more about the horror of the moment. That's just um, something that you have to feel and not mm -hmm. really um, be witness to. So I think that you're just going to be let down because you have your your vision of it. Also, I think that he suffers from, like I, I've said this before when we talked about him, that he puts so much weight into character mm -hmm. and the backstory of these characters, the internal monologue and life of these characters and what they're experiencing, that they're, it's really hard to get that across mm -hmm. on film. And I, and I feel like that always is... Uh, lacking and it's always kind of left out um, in an adaptation. Well, and I think that's why the simpler his story is, the yeah. better it adapts. Right. Because there's less of that, it, there's less being revealed through the internal monologue. And it's right. not that you're not getting more uh, depth from from a novelization or a novel than, than an adaptation or a movie, but there's just, there's less lost from page to screen. Um, you know, especially early on, you look at the lineup of of movies that were adapted from his works. You've got Carrie, The Shining, Creepshow, Cujo, The Dead Zone, Christine, and even Children of the Corn. Yeah, that's a that's a strong start as far as especially in the 70s, early 80s. Mm -hmm. Those movies worked. Uh, they, you know, it was also at a time where he was writing high as a kite. <laughs> and on cocaine and, and yeah. drunk off his rocker, right. and, uh, you know, which he's talked at length about. But the the stories were leaner and meaner right. than later in his career. And yeah. I I think early on, especially when you're looking at something like Carrie, right? They were like pulpier, yes, yeah. And and the things that he's giving to the character of Carrie are things that are more easily visualized, uh -huh. uh, especially when you have somebody, I'm assuming you've seen the original Carrie. Yeah. I just watched it like oh, really? a few months ago. I've okay. never seen it, but, um, I agree that I, f I, I like that one. Mm -hmm. And I feel like some of these going back to them, they feel a little bit TV miniseries ish. Mm -hmm. So th that one, and I like children of the corn. So I do agree with okay. you that some of these early ones hold their own weight. So. Did you see dead zone? Yes. Okay. What'd you think of Dead Zone? Because I, it's, as a story, it's very almost episodic mm -hmm. where it, it has a through line, but there are almost these mini stories tucked into it. I love Dead Zone. Okay. And I think that one, it does, even in the film, it feels episodic. Yeah. Like through this man's life yeah. and experience, like it, it jumps around in his life. And well, and that's one of those things. When I go back to those early movies, yeah. they're very closely adapt adapted from the novel mm. uh you know carrie especially cujo especially the dead zone christine these are they're they're not page for page and beat for beat but they're very faithful to the source even the shining uh which has gotten a lot of flack from stephen king just because there there are some major differences there yeah um but but even the shining what it adapts what kubrick did with it uh, really captures a a sense of of Stephen King horror. Uh -huh. I think better than others, even though famously, you know, King hates it because of how fundamentally it altered his main character. His main character was very autobiographical of himself and his alcoholism and things like that. And so, I think it was just more personal, right, for him in that regard. But just not knowing any of that, it's it's a strong adaptation and a mm. very strong film. It's a stronger film 
than it is adaptation of of the novel. Yeah. Um, but but early on, you know, you just you get this really close kind of thing, and then starting around eighty four, and it's it's with Children of the Corn because. Well, can I say something about those earlier films? I, I feel definitely. like they benefit too because there's a lot of really strong directors. So that's true. There's um, De Palma. De Palma for Carrie. There's Cronenberg for The Dead Zone. There's um, John Carpenter for yeah, Christine. Right. So there's a lot uh, of Romero really strong. For, for and I feel Cooper. like as they go on, there's. I don't know. I, I'd have to look at them exactly. But. Well, and, and that happens in the 80s because yeah. in the 80s, you get this new crop of filmmaker. Uh, as far as the pulp material, this is where it really starts to head towards the direct-to-video era right. of yeah, the yeah. 90s where you have these two tiers of director. Mm -hmm. You have your your auteurs, your filmmakers. And, you know, in the 70s, early 80s, they would do something a little pulpier, but they move on to lots of different kinds of projects. Right. And and so these stories start to get shoveled to, I hate saying lesser directors, but just people that aren't looking to, uh, you know, push the boundaries of storytelling and performance and and cinematography and, and the art of uh, horror filmmaking. Right. Like some of those early, those early directors aren't horror filmmakers. They're just really good filmmakers that yeah. happen to do horror movies. Right. Well, I mean, I mean, they are, I mean, very strong crop of horror direct like they do Cronenberg, i mean Cronenberg, especially yeah 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 De palma does i mean that one's i guess kubrick has a lot of horror in his even even it, things yeah. that aren't traditionally right, horror movies right. have horrific elements in them i wouldn't call him a horror director but he no. does deal with a lot of horrifying yep. things and um but i mean like i watched misery mm -hmm. well i i had never seen it and i watched it for oh this. really um and i agree that one is so focused on character and mm -hmm. that's such a lean story that it it works i think it feels a little tv miniseries ish like it could be a hallmark channel movie now <laughs> like i really do can you imagine if hallmark put on a movie where some woman has a man prisoner and she's smashing his ankles with sledgehammers i think they would now really now okay. i think maybe sure. not that not? scene but i think yeah. they would do something like that and also looking at those performances now, <laughs> it, it, those they're very nineties. Yeah, very nineties. Like those would not win the award today. No. And and that's when I go back to that late eighties, nineties era. The standouts are just the the normal, the semi normal stories with either serial killers or human characters. Yeah. Because in the eighties, you have Firestarter, Cat's Eye, Silver Bullet, Maximum Overdrive. These are all supernatural, and they get cheesy. When yeah. you go back and watch those adaptations, but Stand By Me, right, right. excellent flick, yeah. Rob Reiner, but yeah. he's not he's not trying to make, and, and Stand By Me is not a, a horror story no. anyway, but it's just about these characters encountering a situation. Um, yeah, I mean, he, he did Misery too, right. and I feel like you can tell that there was a strong director behind it with how yeah. he, he worked with the actors and everything. Well, and I think Rob Reiner and Frank Darabont really because Darabont comes later with Green Mile and uh, okay. The Mist and yeah. they whether the films themselves are great or not they have a handle on the tone and and the faithfulness to to the source there. he did Shawshank too right yep okay yeah, yeah. Shawshank's the one that you know you're not going to find many people disagreeing on right. the quality of that one yeah. Green Mile can get syrupy 
And yeah, so I've seen that in a long time. I've I've never been a huge fan of it. It's yeah. it's an excellent adaptation of the book, mm. um, almost scene for scene. But it it just it it never resonated with me. It didn't resonate with me as a book. Um, Can I tell you how mm-hmm. much I love and am committed to this podcast? Absolutely. I watched The Dark Tower. Oh, Clint! No. I paid money Clint, to watch no. The Dark Tower. Oh, I'm sorry. Because I you have you have you read pretty much everything? I've I've read everything. Okay, and I've read The Dark Tower series several times through. Okay, I I hit those maybe once every two years. It's See, I I have read a handful of his mm. books, and The Dark Tower is one that I have. So I figured I should put in the work and do that because I. Yeah. I want to be able to talk about the uh, like from an adaptation point. And that's and that's where my whole lineup of movies and my conversation has been going. Yeah. <laughs> is The Dark Tower. Well, we, so you can I'm, put it off, but I was just going to no, bring no, it up no, that I, I have let's seen get it. There. Okay. Let's get there because The Dark Tower represents this culmination of kind of Hollywood's love affair with Stephen King. Yeah. Where they really want to capture but they also want to have a commercially viable movie right and i i think the dark tower represents that more than any other stephen king adaptation Mm -hmm. this is something that has been stripped for parts and presented as a oh we can start a franchise with this and the kids will like it and it's pg-13 and here you go kids don't don't you don't you like it (laughs) what'd you think of it i hated it it's one of the worst should it's awful okay let's like we have this amazing alternative alternate um reality of Incredible. earth yep. that stephen king is set up where it's this western dystopian world let's spend as little time there as possible yep real world let's go to the new york city with just this boy and not a very well cast boy no, I, and he doesn't awful. have a lot to work with i hate i hate criticizing a kid actor because it, it, it's the filmmaker's fault like yeah. if, if you're going to give uh, a kid really weighty scenes get a kid that can handle really weighty scenes that's your responsibility to this young actor and write a scene that they can actually act with right oh go on the dark Sorry. tower should be one of the easiest <laughs> yeah stephen king the yeah. first book yeah. is the most is one of his earlier books right mm-hmm. is one of the most precise stories about just this Western story uh, in this dystopian world where a gunslinger is following a man in black. And that's, that's, that's literally it. how it starts. The gunslinger, uh, you know, was, or the man in black fled across the desert and the gunslinger followed or however it goes. Yeah. And it's such a beautifully simple yep. story about this man and this boy on the trail of, yep. of this other man yep. and trying to survive in this inhospitable world. And, um, so that's your first movie. Your script is practically on the page. This sets up this world yeah. perfectly. So this movie decides, no, we'll just take little bits for all, how many books? Eight? Oh, there, there's eight books, but yeah. they they hop, a, a majority of what they take is from book uh, five, six, and, and a little bit of seven, yeah. but mainly five and six. Like, why would you go to book six? Uh, to you know, they're they're into beam breakers and yeah. people that they're kidnapping and and using their psychic. But that's that's book six, right? I just I I could not believe what I was watching on the screen. It was it was taking this vast and sprawling epic spread over books that were written over decades, uh, and and trying to to just cram it all in at once. And made the most interesting characters like 
uh, the man in black um, and the gunslinger, mm -hmm. like so flat and one dimensional, mm -hmm. like so uninteresting in every way possible. He feels so alien and old world in the books. He he really feels like somebody that is just not of our time. Right. And and that's so much of what his character is. And and this just felt like, a, uh, you know. Yeah, and they tried to get that across by like having him eat a hot dog, like a fish out of water story. Like that's, that's really? all like the best we can do to show that, yeah, this man's not yeah. from our world. Uh, man, I... <laughs> I don't want to do a remove. I don't no, want to do a I, review. I don't want to review Dark Tower. What but I want I've, to talk about yeah. is is it's emblematic of the the problem there that that people get to. It's it's the idea that we're going to take this this enormous novel and we're going to make it cotton candy for you. Right. To an extent, that's what I felt with it. Chapter two. Yeah. Really enjoyed it. Chapter one. Right. And and I was okay with it. It not going into some of the more far reaching supernatural surreal elements because yeah. okay this is from the kids perspective but i really thought when we got to it chapter two it chapter one's a solid horror flick yeah getting to it chapter two i thought oh they're gonna go all out right, right. they've got people i know they can go weird yeah they can they can go out into the space between space into todash space and and deal with these entities that you can't even see because they're just light and darkness and all this crazy stuff no just Pennywise grows big, big. <laughs> and then they make fun of him small. And I, I just, I couldn't believe what I was watching because yeah. here again, it's, it's the idea. And they did the same thing with the dark tower. Audiences won't like that or get it. Or I don't know what they think. Somebody of got cold feet on that one. I think yes. the studio probably, uh, I don't know who did because when you read interviewers with the director, Andy, yeah. Machete or or I I'm I forget I his last name. Remember. But when you read interviews, he specifically talks about how weird the second one's going to get. Yeah. And how much they're going to bring in that surreal element. And then it's not there. Right. And so I don't know if if it was there and they just got to the the, the special effects end of things and they couldn't figure out how to make it look right or I, I don't know what happened. It just right. the the movie that came out, it chapter two does not match the promises of what he was talking about in his early interviews. Right. And it really felt flat. It it felt repetitive of of chapter one when it worked. And when it didn't work, it just felt flat. Well, it didn't help that they brought in those flashbacks from them as kids. Yeah. Like, cause it just made you feel like you're just reliving the yeah. first movie all over again. And so it didn't give those actors playing the adult versions the like weight it needed like it just felt it just felt like they were filling a spot almost to get to this end point rather than like they are them having their own story and that's a piece where the adaptation failed because of the faithfulness of the adaptation in the book yeah. you're getting these adults coming together from the beginning and they're remembering their childhoods but that's the entire story the whole time so every flashback is you're essentially it chapter one yeah but the minute you decide to abandon that format and in it chapter one, just do the kids' stories if it's happening, and it chapter two is going to be the adults. Well, the adult story on the page is them just remembering. Mm -hmm. You can't make a whole movie of that. Well, apparently you can. It's just not a great movie. Right. Because it's just people walking around remembering what you already know. And yeah. sort of like with Black Coat's Daughter, you're just from the beginning like, okay, I know all this. Right, right. Why do I have to watch these characters remember it? Right. In the book, you're watching it in real time. Very interesting. Very scary. The movie, 
if you're going to split it, kids and adults, now you have to firm up the adult story to be able to hold the weight of what you're going to do with it. Right, right. I mean, I feel like like it as an example, like that book does a really good job of using the timeline mm -hmm. to mirror itself and to yeah. enhance the sections that are intense and like yeah. they're saying something about each other. Like yeah. the, when they're kids, it's saying something about when they're adults and when they're adults is about their past. And um, I think that ultimately with Stephen King, I think sometimes it's a failure of the director, mm -hmm. like maybe with it, because I, I do really enjoy the the novel. Um, and I think sometimes it might be a fault of Stephen King in his writing that it's just not, you can't adapt, adapt, make an adaptation of it. And, but I think that's okay. I don't think everything needs to yeah. be ad adapted, but also I think it's tricky because the format in the framework that Stephen King works in, which is horror, lends itself to be adapted into a movie. So it's just like hard to tell. Like, I think that comes down to maybe the director having that um, skill to pick out what will work and won't work on film. It was really hard for me watching Lisey's story on yeah. Apple Plus stretched over eight episodes and realizing again that just take the Dark Tower book one and give me an eight episode HBO series of of just take what's on the page and put it on the screen, it would be incredible. Mm -hmm. It would essentially be surreal, otherworldly, Western type Game of Thrones. Um, right. Which Game of Thrones proved there's a market for that. Right. There's an audience for that. And so I, I think it's also you have to know what the best audience is and what the best venue is mm -hmm. for your adaptation. One of the things I noticed going back through all these and, and even just looking at the list, like if you go back to the, the 70s and 80s, those are so stereotypically 70 and 80s horror. Yeah. Right. And late 80s horror. Mm -hmm. And especially when you get to the 90s, like needful things and and uh, um, misery, lawnmower man, dark half, uh, the mangler, <laughs> thinner. These are in the 90s. It was very, you know, what's your hook? Every, every horror movie yeah. had a hook. Can you tell me, uh, isn't the Mangler a really ridiculous premise? Yes, it's it's a it's again. What Stephen is it again? King has always had this. It's it's essentially workshop machinery <laughs> that gets will of its own uh -huh. and is evil. Sort of like, but but he has had this fascination yeah. with inanimate objects, right. That have isn't will. that Maximum Overdrive? That's too? Maximum Overdrive. That's Christine with the car, yeah, right? That's you know Stephen King. And, and it comes from this fascination with the idea of a totem, mm. the idea that there's power within an object and that if there's power within an object, then something supernatural or an entity could inhabit or manifest in that object. And mm. that just creeps him out. And he does a good job on the page of making those things creepy. But even Christine... It's it's a, a fairly loved movie, but when you go back to it, I just watched it for the first time. You're watching this car, and it it doesn't hold up. Yeah, in in my mind, it it doesn't. It 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 really borders on cheesy, and it gets a lot of forgiveness just for being a product of its time. You could not make that movie today. No, and and have anybody take it seriously. There was some fun stuff. I I enjoyed it. Um, oh yeah, it's yeah. it's it's fun. Yeah. It's it's a good flick. But it's just, it's that idea of on the page, you can really communicate the horror of 
somebody realizing that something that's not supposed to be alive is alive, but they have this weird relationship or symbiosis with it. And on the screen, it's just boy with creepy car. And you got to go a long way to really be able to sell that uh, right. <laughs> on a lot of different levels. Um, but yeah, I just, throughout each era, I was just like, okay, the 90s Stephen King movies are essentially uh, this giant collage of 90s tropes uh -huh. and filmmaking style. And the 90s particularly is an era that no matter what movie you watch, when you go back, you realize, oh, there was a very specific style to 90s filmmaking that you can just pop in a movie and you know it was made in the 90s. Yeah. Do you think is, he kind of set some of that in motion, though? Because, I do, because I, yeah. I think his books are also, they're, they're pulp books. Right. They're, they're popular books. They're happening at the time. And he's a huge movie fan. Right. And so I think movies are being inspired by him. Then he's being inspired by movies. Then they're being, it's this, yeah. this kind of back and forth marriage between the two. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, when you go back through his books, those elements are there too. Right. Um, you know, he has, has a little more of a cohesive voice, but especially with as much Americana as he injects and as much characterization as he does. Right. There's a lot of just oh, these characters are very 90s. These mm. characters are very 2000s. These yeah. characters are very 80s. Right. Um, even The Shining, uh, even Jack Torrance, no matter which which version you take, uh, you know, book, movie, miniseries, whatever, uh, Dr. Sleep, mm -hmm. it, it's a very early 80s uh, flawed dad. Uh, it just, it when you break it down to its elements, those elements are very specific to the time they were made. Yeah. When when did that one come out? Eighty three. Oh, did I think. it? Yeah, it's The Shining. No, excuse me. 80, 80, 1980. Oh, okay. 1976 was Carrie, and then eighty was The Shining. That was the first two adaptations. Well, I, that's probably why it still feels very seventies because yeah. I mean you're fresh into the eighties. Yes. So I always thought it was like really late seventies. And Kubrick reason. always feels like not in a bad way. It always feels yeah. like his movies are a decade. He has a not behind, yeah. but. Uh, he's he's drawing on the style from the previous decade, right? And he's just now it's it's almost like he's putting his stamp on. Well, it, it might be because it takes so long to work on yeah. it. like his films. You mean so few, so yeah. it's probably a decade working yeah. on a film, and those things just stick around. Because really, and and maybe I'm just showing ignorance here, but I think 2001 was definitely ahead of its time. I think that's the only Kubrick movie that's ahead of its time. Yeah, every other Kubrick movie is not advancing as, as far as the, the technology of the art. Mm -hmm. Uh, it's, it's very masterful filmmaking. You know, it's kind of the culmination of the years before it, right. when rather did, than something that launches forward. Yeah. When did the clockwork orange come out? Uh, that's a really, it was before the shine. Okay. So that it was, would have been 73, 70. Yeah. Cause that kind of has this 70, 60s feel to yeah. it. It has that very yeah. retro mod, yeah, the mod look, kind of yeah. '60s feel, yeah. Uh, but especially when you get to the to the 2000s, it was almost like people looked back at the the '90s and they're like, "Man, we've we got a little campy there. We went <laughs> we went a little too far." And the yeah. 2000s was all about how do we ground everything, and you see it, in, it not just Stephen King stuff, but oh. you see it in you know Batman Begins, right? Right. Much as I love that movie, yeah, it's essentially how do we take Batman and make it more real right. and the x-men at the time everything was about let's make it more convincing and stephen king movies the exact same thing and they struggled because they were all trying to really ground it 
in the real world. Yeah. Um, and that's like, you know, Secret Window, Dreamcatcher, uh, which was fairly awful. 1408, <laughs> The Mist. Uh, these are all things. I remember being okay. 1408's good. Yeah. It's one where it could have used more grounding, I think. Okay. I think it was... So when you read the story, it really evokes The Shining. Mm. And I think in making the movie, they were... It, it almost feels like they were nervous about doing that for fear of being called derivative okay you know oh you're just you're just doing you're basically you know lifting from kubrick right and so they they tried to push it a little more and visually uh do a little more with it but the the story itself is much more of a kind of sister piece to the the shining when you read it um did you watch the carrie remake I was like, no, I, I haven't watched that one. I have it. I haven't watched it's it. It's okay. Yeah. It's, it's got a good cast and it does some interesting things, but it, it doesn't come close to the, yeah. the first one. But again, because it doesn't want to, it doesn't want to do essentially what the Psycho remake did. It doesn't want to be a shot for shot. Right. So it tries to bring new elements to it and pull some more things from the page or just find new ways to make it more modern. Uh-huh. And it's it's a decent adaptation, but it it loses some of that just, here's a girl who, you know, is is being raised in this this ultra religious home and doesn't hasn't been equipped to deal with the real world. Right. Right. Um, but I, my my bottom line, I guess, is I feel like all the adaptations, they're always they seem keenly aware of the fact that it's very difficult to adapt his work uh-huh. and that most people have either come up short or have failed Mm -hmm. and so everybody tries to find different ways to adapt stephen king in a way that that works on screen and dark tower does not work (laughs) yes clearly (laughs) one fails does not work now does it work as a movie like even regardless like if you knew anything about the dark tower it's uninteresting just as a movie visually uh, even even if you were just wholesale lifting from completely different books and cramming it all together, it the Dark Tower is a a fascinating visual landscape. Yeah, uh, that whole series, and you have so much to pull from that the best you can come up with is dreary New York City, and then when you go into uh, these other worlds, it's just essentially canyons with two moons. And right, maybe a futuristic building on the yeah, horizon. Yeah, like decrepit building just like in the background. I and... mean, book two, and as stupid as this is going to sound, you've got this giant forest and you've got this insane lumbering AI uh, bear, bear yeah. that's a robot, mm-hmm. but that's so old that, that it's broken down and its AI has gone essentially insane. Right. And you've got, you know, this this gunslinger and these three gunslingers in training trying to survive and take this thing down. And that's just a random chapter. That's right. we're going from point A to not even point B. Also, I mean, he's he's dealing with like the loss of his fingers yeah. in the, like the second book. Yeah. It's just like all this stuff that like makes their characters so rich. Yeah. And okay, I haven't actually finished all of the Dark Tower books, but mm-hmm. at any point, are there just these portals? I don't remember just portals. So there's, 
that was that was their version. They have the doors. Yeah. It's, you know, and it's that's such a cool image. I know, but these just like flatten and, it out and make yeah. it so uninteresting. It's yeah. just it's just ordinary. Stargate. It's, it's what I've seen before. Yeah. And they do have that sort of stuff, but it's all broken down. They don't Right. They're not a, a big part of the story. It's just there are all these different ways to travel between different uh, realities or or different paths of the beam. And sometimes it's like this old tech that is portally that maybe you find one that's still working, but it's usually these magic doors. I know. I'd always felt like it was more um, like just supernatural element, yep. like tied in in the, in like this world is harnessed. It, it never felt like this scientific achievement. Well, to and me. that's the thing. The, the idea is once upon a time, it was magic, you right. know, kind of in the old days of Arthur Eld, kind of, you know, the, the high fantasy yeah. and then technology over you know, centuries and millennia came in and it had its peak. And now it's thousands of years past. And that technology is all failing, dead, or gone. Yeah. And the world is essentially turning back to magic. Mm-hmm. But you have this force in in the Man in Black and, and the Crimson King who are basically creatures of this old magic. And they're, mm-hmm. they're trying to draw from it and essentially rule reality or whatever. All of this, you can tell why it's so hard to adapt. Because right. even in trying to sum this up, I am conscious of how stupid this all sounds. Well, if you had never read The Dark Tower or any Stephen King, and you're just listening to somebody talk about the man <laughs> in black, the Crimson King, the beams, this giant bear robot they have to and take. And there's cowboys? And there's cowboys? you just yeah, be like, it's such a, no thanks. Like, on paper, just like listing out the elements, it's yeah. such a mess. Yeah. But so, but like it springs from that first book so well yeah. that it's just like this, almost just a Western story yeah. with elements of like this decaying world and bits of magic around yeah. the the edges that it feels like so well developed and it makes sense as you're reading it like oh of course that's in there i um, remember early on in game of thrones uh the first season all of a sudden when the dragons hatch you're like oh yeah this is a fantasy story right right I forgot there's magic in this world and then especially it was either season two or three where what's her face has the shadow baby yeah it, it had been you know, episodes without anything, then suddenly like, oh yeah, there's legit real blood magic in this series. Yeah, right. right. Uh, and it, 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 it was much more of a, you get lost in the normal and then you're reminded, oh yeah, there's, there's some weird sorceress. Right. Uh, right. And, and the dark tower does that, especially early on where it's just, here's a Western. Yeah. The world is different. Yeah. It's this dystopia, far flung dystopia, but it's, it's a Western until, you know, there's this weird element that pops up and then you remember, oh yeah, there's magic in this world. Right, right. But it's not beholden to that. No. And so when it happens, it feels weird or ethereal or scary or whatever else. Right. And it feel, like it always felt to, like, to me like it was magic and technology working together yeah. and like both are almost on their way out in this yeah. way and they're just holding on. Yeah. So it just like, it always made sense to me. Um, but I like, you're right. I mean, on paper, it sounds kind of dumb. <laughs> so like when somebody goes to adapt it, like, like the, the adaptation of this, I feel like they picked the laziest route, yeah. like to show, to get across the magic, to get across, across the technology. It was always like these forms we've seen before. Like it was like lesser Holly, um, Harry Potter. It was lesser Stargate or something like that. Um, 
so it was just it nothing felt new or innovative or like um of this world it felt like all elements from other worlds we've seen and it's just, yeah 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 it's a bad movie Ken. it really is man it's 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 it, one of the worst regardless of any of that stuff somehow like all of the actors are bad even though, Even though uh, they're good actors, they're good actors. Matthew McConaughey is the that's one of the weirdest performances yeah. I've ever I've yeah. seen him do. And this is the guy who before this had played Russ Cole in um, Lost It, True Detective season one. Right, was incredible. That character, give that character magic. That's the Man in Black. And so I can totally see or why dark, they cast him. His character from Mud. Yeah, yeah. Like, I mean that. That like, you know, fingers in the dirt, uh, both enamored with and and irritated by the very existence of humanity yeah. in possession of these dark powers. But, you know, understanding this weird relationship that he has with this, you know, centuries old cowboy, essentially, that's following him. Right. Matthew McConaughey's sharp, smart choice for that. But whatever he's being directed to do or choosing to do in that movie. Oh, no. Right. No, it's just villain of the week. It's <laughs> that could have been an episode of, of just Supernatural. And that would be an insult to Supernatural. Uh, it just is very ordinary. Yeah. And I feel like the magic, I mean, I always felt like in the book to me, it was that he was capable of this magic, yeah. but knew he didn't need to do it. Yeah. He's cocky. He's cocky. Yeah. yeah. And he knows his, like his strengths and how he doesn't like, yeah, I don't need to use it. I have these powers and like his, and he knows his relationship with um, the gunslinger. So he doesn't really like, yeah, he's cocky. Yeah. Yeah. I just, so, so, I mean, top to bottom, the adaptations are a product of the time. And I, I feel like they're, they're always struggling. I, I don't think movies lend themselves to anything King. I think series is the right way to go. That's just personal preference. But even then, you got to know, you can't just say, I've got Lisey's story, eight episodes. But I have, I don't tell Lisey's story is a three episode adaptation. Yeah, I haven't enjoyed any of the, those though. Yeah. Well, but <laughs> if you took the entire story, but even then, how do you take a book that's about the internal monologues of a character yeah. and really sell that on the screen? That's tough to do. Right. Uh, you know, so do you even adapt it in the first place? Right. Uh, you know, whereas have you seen Gerald's Game in 1922 on Netflix? I had started Gerald's Game, but had to turn it off because of the risk cutting stuff. Uh, I can't. De- no, well, no you made de- it pretty far for that then. Yeah. I turned it off okay. at that scene because I, I just can't deal with that stuff. The degloving. degloving. No, thank you. But Gerald's Game in 1922 are almost shot for shot yeah. of their stories. They're, they're shorter, simpler tales, mm-hmm. but, but those are both movies and adaptations where they knew what they were working with. And a, a two hour movie or an hour and a half movie was the perfect format for that story. Mm-hmm. Something like the dark tower. Why would you ever try to make a two hour PG 13 movie? Have you read the book? Like it, right. it, it doesn't even make sense. So somewhere in the planning phase, when something's greenlit, you need an executive who actually understands, a producer actually understands the material and understand what it's best for. Right. Uh, you know, it needs love or Kevin hate, Feige. Yeah, definitely. And love or hate George R. R. Martin uh, in HBO or the Game of Thrones series, he held out. And for all the offers of movies and for all the offers of adaptations, he kept saying no. 
until HBO had a pitch that sounded like it could actually work for his story. Uh And then he let it through. And I... I appreciate that Stephen King has the, I don't know if you've heard of that, where he, a director can just give him a dollar. I was just going to bring that up because I just- he will let them adapt it, which is- Well, it's student directors yes. and they can't publish it. It's like, yes. he, it's just like for kind of school well, credit. Well, he does that. That's what um, that's what Darabont did. That's yeah. what different ones have done on big movies Well, that's too. how he found out about Darabont. Yeah. And like- he did his student film based on his thing and then he like remembered him and got him to do Shawshank or whatever it was. And I love that. Yeah. At its core. Yeah. But at the same time, I think that's why we have so many just so-so adaptations of King. I think he's so in love with movies and so excited when something's going to be adapted. He doesn't have that. No, no, I'm not going to let that filmmaker in that studio take this project and turn it into a two hour movie. Like I, no, that does not serve this. No, I'm not going to write an eight episode treatment of Lisey's story. That does not serve my story. Yeah. And maybe he can't see it or maybe he just doesn't care or I don't know. Who knows? Do you have an idea of what your favorite adaptations are? I made a list of Ooh. some. Did okay. you have? I did. An, okay. I, did. I don't have them in any particular order. I do not either. Um, also, the, one of the rules <laughs> was no shining. Yes. So shining automatically, let's just put the shining as a an excellent film. And of course, it would be on the list. So this is a list of your, what'd you do? Five? Yeah, I did five. Your, your five favorite adaptations. Let's hear them. You want to hear all of them? I do want to hear okay. all of them. This is in no order. Okay. So, um, Doctor Sleep, Shawshank, Pet Cemetery from 1989, not the remake, mm-hmm. which wasn't terrible. Mm-hmm. Uh, Stand by Me and The Dead Zone. Ooh, nice. Uh, yeah. So, that's a um, good list. Yeah, I was gonna put. I thought about putting the first part of it on there, but I'm like, it doesn't hold together as a whole thing, so forget about it. Yeah, I loved it, Chapter One, but as soon as Chapter Two came out, my love for Chapter One really fell apart. Yeah, uh, and I, just... if I had six, I'd put Carrie on there. I think okay. I like Stand by, um, by Me just a little bit more, but I, I'd really enjoyed Carrie too. Okay. All right, my list is Dr. Sleep. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, anybody that's listened to this podcast know that we have a, a weird and uh, unnatural love for Dr. Sleep. Yeah. Uh, which really is a good movie and accomplishes a whole lot. Uh, Dr. Sleep and then Shawshank Redemption is on my list. And then it's it's classics. It's Stand By Me, Carrie, and um, The Dead Zone. Mm-hmm. Which ones were different on ours? Um, we couldn't possibly have come up with the exact same I list. I had Pet like, Cemetery. Pets, see, I love Pet Cemetery. Yeah. And I, I really went back and forth about Cujo because it's so close to the book. Like okay. if I went through and I was doing a list of the ones that, that really were the best adaptations – Shining wouldn't be on there. It would be um, Carrie, Cujo, Dead Zone, Doctor Sleep, and uh, Shawshank. One thing to mention is I did not go as at an ad- adaptation point mm-hmm. of view because I have not read that many of his books. So as far as I, I don't know how these line up very um, how they line up, but I so I just went from my favorite Stephen mm-hmm. King films. I even did the math. Oh, I did. I did math, Clint. That's dumb. That's it is. Dumb. 25% of adaptations I consider to be very good or excellent. Of Stephen King? 25% of Stephen King. Yeah. Hmm. yeah. I, I mean, 50% from... are meh and 25% are real bad. 
I think it almost fell into quarters. I think I would probably go as far to say probably 25% of Stephen King films are good. Yeah. Like I, there's a lot on that list. I'm like, that's no, Yeah. there's very few, like my top five is almost my top Stephen King films. Minus the, yeah. Minus (laughs) the shining and Christine. I I think, yeah, Yeah. I probably, there's not many, but I did watch the running man. With Arnold Schwarzenegger, which oh, I never wow. seen, which is under his pseudonym. Has Richard Bachman yeah. has nothing to do with the book. I mean, I, a little see, to do I with the book. Yeah, I wouldn't even know that. But as an Arnold Schwarzenegger movie, <laughs> I had a blast because anything yeah. with him is just insane and fun. Running Running Man is a fun movie. Yeah. And it's a very good story. But the two are... Yeah, so I mean, far as removed from each other. As far as like a relic from that time yep. period in the eighties, like it's fun to watch. Yeah. All right. Now, if you could like take your top five or your five, uh, which one is your? I would have to never watch any of the four again. Which is the one that you like to come back to? Uh, maybe the Dead Zone. Okay. I I, I really liked Doctor Sleep, but. I just think the dead zone, like, I mean, Christopher Walken is fantastic in that movie. Shout Factory has a, they just did a restoration. I think it comes out oh, really? next week. Is it Shout Factory? And it's or, Cronenberg. I love Cronenberg. Uh, yeah, but it's it's coming out on a new Blu-ray edition mm, that I'm cool. really excited about. But Dead Zone's one I've, I've come back to. I think Dead Zone, Shawshank, and Dr. Sleep just yeah. continues to... Um, I don't know what it is about it. It's, it's also like the Dead Zone where in a lot of ways it feels... Like it has a yeah, lot of small stories running yeah. a beginning, middle, and end within yeah. it. Especially with um, the camp of yeah. like uh, vampire creatures. Like, yeah, they break that up very episodically, yeah. I think. Yeah. yeah, if you haven't seen Dr. Sleep, uh, you know, start there. I'm, I'm pretty sure uh, Dead Zone might be forgotten. I bet a lot of people have not seen the Dead Zone. I think that, um, yeah, it's on definitely on a lot of top 10 yeah. lists of Stephen King's work. And I... As far as like rewatchability, I always tend to go back to like older movies like yeah. that, like Pet Cemetery and The Dead Zone are definitely like um, like Halloween movies yeah. for me. So it's just easy for me. I did a lot of looking at articles other people had done where they rank all the movies. Yeah. And I was consistently surprised how low Pet Cemetery is. I know. Because yeah. Pet Cemetery really... Mm-hmm. still works for me. I know, I it re- really yeah. creeps me out. I think it's really well done. There are a few little wonky kind of special effects things with the kid at the end where you can tell yeah. it's a doll or I love or that different stuff, things. But Speaking of wonky, Misery has one of the most wonky special effects scenes I've ever really? seen. Really? What? At the end when they're fighting, yeah. she hits her head off the typewriter when she falls. Yeah. The worst rubber head I've ever seen. Really? Like, it looks like a mannequin head they stuck some hair on, and it's so bad. Okay. And it took me out of that movie for a good, like, the last 20 minutes, because I was just laughing at how bad that rubber head looked. But uh, it's just an aside. If uh, I love the book, The Dark Half. It's about this guy who's... who's alternate author it's it's basically Stephen King Richard Bachman thing Richard Bachman basically comes to life yeah and is slowly making his way back to Stephen King with the intent of killing him and becoming the one true author right uh the dark half's a great book but man that movie 
That's a bad movie. I almost watched it because it's free and a bunch of stuff, but I was like, I never, I didn't get around to it. It's at the time, I remember watching it early in my kind of love of of Stephen King stuff. Loved that movie Mm -hmm. and uh, bought copies of it and just finally (laughs) went back and watched it. Like, oh no, oh honey, no, that was bad. (laughs) That is, oof. Yeah. Uh, And it's it's funny how, uh, and that's just movies in general. I'll remember visual effects being yeah. so convincing right. or really just blowing me away. And then I'll go back and watch. How did I think that this yeah. looked in any way convincing? Right. Uh, it just, we're, we're very spoiled. We live in a golden age <laughs> where comic books are just movies now and mm-hmm. you can do pretty much anything. And we can sit around and be like, the hair doesn't look real. We're so spoiled. I, but honestly, I enjoy all those cheesy effects yeah. more than CG most of the time. Yeah. It, it doesn't matter. CG can sometimes take me out of it more than a stupid looking rubber head. Yeah. Um, so it just depends yeah. on, I guess, what kind of mood I'm in. All right. So uh, go back through, watch a bunch of Stephen King, see what you think. Uh, it was fun. I had a really good time. Me too. So. And I, man, I'm getting really good at avoiding paying for films. Signing up <laughs> for a seven day free trial, like Showtime. And then somehow they magically forget I did this. And then like a week later I can cancel and do it again. Just do it again. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I did that. Like I watched most of the films this week that way. And, and I'm, I'm feeling really proud of myself for that. Good. Yeah. Good. Yeah. I, I put it on my resume. Can there avoid fees. There you go. That's, that's, that's pedigree, Clint. That's how it starts. <laughs> You don't need talent. You just need showtime. Yep. And other, other just cheap yep. and easy ways. Forget to you stars. I'm not paying for anything. <laughs> All right. Well, I uh, I hope you enjoyed this horror episode. I am probably not done watching horror movies. I'm probably going to watch some more, but I'm I am going to try to watch Ted Lasso. But I'm not using it as a medication. For I'm my not using it disorders. as medication. I'm using it as meditative therapy. Okay. That's healthier, right? Like immersion therapy? I don't know. This has been Cinebabble episode Are we going to do 32. a Cinetron swim? Or a spin? Oh, yeah. I almost forgot Cinetron. Man, really jumping the gun. Cinetron would be mad at you. Well, you know. He's probably going to give you a really, a, a really bad roll this don't time. You, we, we legitimately, if you ever think we don't legitimately roll, we legitimately spin this thing. We so do. here we go. Gosh. Okay. I think this is a cruel trick. Like we are, we're just meant to do this movie. So it's called, I think we're alone now. And the viewers or the listeners may find this familiar because this was the movie we were supposed to do when we stopped doing pod, the podcast. When, for, when the uh, pandemic, pandemic. Yeah, this was the last. Destroyed all of society. The last role before we stopped. Isn't this movie about. Like the end of the world has happened and there's just... Yeah, there's some element of in there. 
that in okay there. So, so there's there's irony packed on top of destiny here yes and like, having what's it called again i think we're alone now. this is peter dinklage and somebody uh, else fanning. famous is it dakota fanning sure i think dakota it is fanning. i believe so or, or it's one of the fans sister fanning how many fannings are there six really no okay <laughs> I wouldn't be surprised. I don't know. I, I have no idea. They're like Olsons. They just, they pop up and I'm like, oh, there's another Fanning. Yep. L Fanning, Dakota Fanning, uh, Sunshine Fanning. Oh, it's L Fanning. I could have scrolled down like two inches and seen okay. it. Okay, sorry. Um, I don't think Sunshine Fanning is an actual person. I think I made is, that though. up. It will come into existence now. All right. Um, so yeah, we can't escape this movie. We're going to do it until Perfect. Sinatron allows Perfect. us to continue on. All right. Um, we're stuck in a time loop. Yeah. But especially cause we're probably going to go back into quarantine soon. There you go. Maybe next week we're not back. I see what's happening here. I see what's happening here. Yeah. All right. Well, this has been episode 32 of Cinebabble. I believe next week you can also expect a bonus episode of, of Loki. I think we've watched the Loki series and uh, we we may we may end up chatting about that. We'll see if that's its own little bonus episode or if we just throw it in another episode. So be on the lookout for that. Keep and, your peepers uh, open. There you go. For Loki. There you go. All right. This has been Cinebabble episode 32. <laughs> All the pedigree right out the window, Clint. I'm just trying to shut the episode down and okie dokie Loki. That's what. Oh. Sorry. All right. We'll I never said this was a good podcast. We'll just tell the fine people goodbye, Clint. Goodbye, fine people. <laughs> 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 <laughs>